0: Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hello. And today we are introducing one of our favorite episodes from the past coffee. Coffee, 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 coffee. <laughs> <laughs> what do we talk about in this episode, Kristen? The history
1: of coffee production, Um, I think I'd read Coffee Land for this book. So it was a lot about El Salvador and sort of what coffee production looked like, how coffee production collapsed uh, after Brazil outlawed slavery, which was a good time. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about all the baggage with coffee, basically. So I thought it was sort of a good episode to re-release now that we've done our episode on ethical coffee and what it means to be a responsible roaster with Manic Pixie Dream Coffee, which is a coffee company based out of the Niagara region in Ontario, Canada. Um, So now you can, you know, hear a little bit more about the baggage of coffee and why they had to really
0: do a lot of thinking to become ethical coffee roasters. Heck yeah. Without further ado, enjoy this throwback.
1: Uh, This episode, we are looking at coffee, which is, as several different articles told me, the second most tradable commodity after crude oil, so that's a fun fact. That
0: is a fun (laughs) fact. Is it as evil as crude oil? I'm worried now.
1: Um, I mean, not as evil. (laughs) Ooh. I don't know. I feel like coffee is going to be a lot like any other agricultural commodity that we talk about, so... You can probably predict half of the issues we're going to talk about in this podcast, but we're going to talk about different stuff, so please listen to the end. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So uh, maybe we'll go through the basics, and then we'll do human rights, and then environment, and then what you can do. Classic setup. Uh, So just to start, coffee, um, for those of you that don't know... um, Coffee beans are the inner seed from what's called the cherry of the coffee plant, and that's a plant that's native to Ethiopia. There are four primary types of coffee, so the one that you've probably had, um, well, the two that you've probably had, one is arabica, and that's like, it's the most common type of good coffee that you get. And then robusta is another kind, which is often like if you buy instant coffee, it'll often be robusta coffee. And then there are two others that are kind of rare called Liberica and Excelsa, but Arabica and Robusta are the two that you'll probably have consumed in your life, unless you are a huge coffee aficionado and you've sought out these other kinds too. So Arabica, it's basically, it's the most common type of coffee that's consumed in North America, and that's because it tastes the best. (laughs) Well, um, Liberica and Excelsa both taste good too, but they're just really hard to produce, so that's why they're not as common. But arabica, it's, like, sweeter, it's less acidic than robusta beans, and they're farmed in areas that have high elevations above sea level and where rain is pretty prevalent. They're also delicate and they're prone to disease, so they are a little bit more difficult to grow in large quantities than robusta beans, and so that's why... Robusta beans you'll often find in sort of those like cheaper instant coffee mixes they will often sort of be in if you get like a dark roast and it tastes kind of burnt, it might be because there's some Robusta in there. Interesting. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So Robusta beans, they are um, generally not all that popular unless you're in a coffee drinking culture where like really strong and like punch you in the face coffee is really common. So there are some cultures where it's the preferred one, but... It's generally not very popular because it can taste burnt or rubbery, which <laughs> those are not two things you typically associate with foods, but it's also easier to grow and it has really high levels of caffeine. And that's actually um, why it doesn't taste very good because um, the high co- caffeine content makes it taste bad. <laughs> but it's also, it's also good for coffee growing because um, caffeine is sort of like a natural insect repellent. So um, it means that you don't have to worry about
0: pests as much on these plants. Oh, so like in co- I mean, I'm sure you'll talk about it later, but is pesticide use not as common on coffee plants?
1: Um, you know what? I mean, I'll talk about this now cuz I don't have a whole lot on it, but pesticides um they are used in coffee production, less for robusta beans than arabica. But yeah, they they are used in coffee production, which is one reason that you might prefer to go with organic rather than rather than like conventionally grown coffee. So, good question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, And Kyla, I looked this up for you, and you can grow a coffee plant in your apartment if you wanted to. (laughs) Yay! We talked about that before, right? Yeah, I think you've, like, on a couple of different podcasts, like, been like, can we grow, (laughs) can I grow this in my apartment? This one, you totally can. Nice! (laughs) You probably can't brew a cup of coffee from the plant, though, because it's like... Well,
0: then what's the point?
1: (laughs) I mean, you could probably produce a few beans, but, like, you're probably... If your coffee plant flowers at all in your apartment, because it's probably not like ideally the conditions they want, it's probably only going to produce a few. And actually coffee plants, they're they're trees and they yield mature harvests only after about four to seven years of like really attentive cultivation. So maybe after seven years, you could get some coffee out of it. I don't know. But (laughs) only if I let it get big enough. (laughs) (laughs) Am I wrong in thinking you don't really drink coffee
0: anyway? I don't like coffee. I don't drink it. I don't eat coffee flavored things. Like, if somebody's trying to give me a treat and I take a bite of it and I'm like, whoa, this has coffee in it, I won't finish it. <laughs> I don't love coffee. It's not my thing. But that's fair. We did an episode about tea. So, and although I feel like I'm, I, I strongly dislike coffee, whereas you could probably take or leave tea.
1: Yeah. And I don't mind tea, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the tea episode was definitely more for you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm a big fan of tea. But I did do like a challenge for this episode. My boyfriend is a hardcore coffee drinker. He is a bit of an aficionado. He might have even tried those other fancy coffees. I don't know. But I have been buying his coffee for the last couple of times, and I'm trying to make sure that I'm buying good brands that are ethically sourced, organic. There's the one that I'm buying now has like a frog on the front and it's like we're friends of the frog. And I was like, "Great, that sounds fantastic." Nice. <laughs> Is that the rainforest alliance certification? I don't No, it's like an other certification that's just for frogs. <laughs> Fair enough.
1: <laughs> I didn't come across that one in my research, but there are so many eco labels that I'm sure I'm sure there's many that I wouldn't come across.
0: It might just be a packaging choice from this particular brand. Maybe they only work with two farms and those farms are like, we have so many frogs, we might as well (laughs) say that we're (laughs) protecting them. (laughs) Who knows?
1: Yeah, yeah. In addition to the different types of coffee beans that you can get, there are also lots of different coffee brewing styles. And I'm not going to go too much into these. Um, I know coffee nerds uh, will be able to talk about each of these methods for hours I'm sure. I don't know a lot about them but we do talk about like the difference between things like um, coffee pod machines and drip coffee and espresso and cold brew in the environment section a little bit so but to tease it. There are different ways to make coffee and um, they do have slightly different environmental impacts. And in particular, coffee pods are a hugely growing trend. Um, More than 40% of American households now own an espresso pod machine, which I think is just wild.
0: (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, that really, oh, that's very upsetting because the coffee pods are just the worst possible choice for the environment other than maybe getting a cup from Starbucks every day. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's like, I, I don't love anything that has single use, so... But also, it's like, I don't think these machines existed for very long. Like, they're pretty new. So the fact that they've been rising so quickly, I wouldn't be surprised if they become, like, the majority of the industry soon.
0: I mean, I I guess I get it if you're a busy person and you don't have time and coffee's the only thing that gets you up in the morning. But I don't know. A French press isn't that much more difficult, you know?
1: Yes. Yeah, definitely. That's one way to sort of control the amount of, like... Drip coffee makes more sense if you're producing it for a large number of people. Those like single cup ones make more sense if you're just producing for yourself. But even then, like, yeah, a French press will do like two cups of coffee and that's pretty much what you need. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but we'll talk about that more in the environment section. In addition to different brewing types, there's also a wide variety of actual drinks that have coffee in them. So I, I didn't do any research on any of these because really the only difference is like how it's made and like does it have milk in it and if so how much and like how in what order are you putting the milk and stuff like that that's not really an ethical thing except for the fact that if you're using a dairy milk that contributes a lot to the environmental footprint so think about that but i don't really have anything else to say about drink types so (laughs) this will not be a podcast about what a cappuccino is
0: (laughs) (laughs) and half of our listeners switch it off right now Yeah, just a quick
1: description as well of um, how coffee production works.
0: So I mentioned
1: that um, the coffee fruit is called a cherry. And basically what happens is after coffee is picked, um, those cherries are picked, the uh, beans are then removed from inside the cherry um, through either a dry or a wet process. So the traditional process is the dry process, which is basically just like you leave it in the sun for a while and then you run it through a grinder Fairly straightforward. The wet process is like more typically seen as a modern process. Um, And it's basically like you use water to wash away the fruit from the seed. So once you've done that, the uh, coffee beans are what are called green coffee beans. Um, And so they're then cleaned. So they're inspected and sorted. And then they go to a roastery that then roasts it. And that's that's how coffee works.
0: Then you use your brewing method of choice. (laughs) 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 I mean, it sounds like a pretty simple process, but knowing our show, I'm sure that it's actually needlessly complicated.
1: Yeah, it's one of the simpler supply chains in that sense, but it actually has a really rich history. So I want to talk a little bit about the history of coffee, just because I think it's really interesting. Yeah, you read like a book about it, right? Yeah, yeah. So the book that I'm drawing on for a lot of this is, um, at least for most of this section, is... um, Coffee Land by Augustine Sedgwick. Really good book, really well written. I would super recommend it. Um, And it goes through the history of coffee. So like, I wasn't able to use it for a lot of the sort of like, how we make decisions today stuff. But the history is really interesting. So we'll do a brief outline on that. About 400 years ago, like if you thought about coffee, it wasn't really something that was consumed outside of the Ottoman Empire. It was primarily just a cultural custom within the Ottoman Empire, um, and it was really only grown commercially in Yemen at that time. Since those 400 years have passed, when we go to today, coffee is now an unrivaled drug to get people to work every day, and it's also (laughs) a ubiquitous daily necessity for many people around the world. Including yourself, I'm sure. Yeah, myself included. I've had four cups of coffee today. Um, (laughs) Um, It's also a cash crop that's produced by more than 25 million people in over 70 different countries. So it is genuinely a huge global commodity that's produced really like all over the place. The word coffee derives from the Arabic kawa. I may be mispronouncing that, so apologies. But that's a word that means wine. So if you think about it, coffee is sort of the wine of Islam. It has a really important place in Ottoman society and across the Middle East, very important product to drink. And early coffee cultivation took place. um, So um, coffee originates in Ethiopia, but the sort of big cultivation that happens around the 16th century happens in Yemen. Um, And Yemen was a big powerhouse of coffee production until until the West gets it and, you know, colonialism. (laughs) Um, So the Ottoman Empire... um, (laughs) was also an empire, so that's important to note. One of the interesting things that the Ottoman Empire did was they would set up a coffee house as one of their first actions when they conquered a new city. And that was their sort of way of demonstrating how, like, the civility of their rule, which I think is kind of interesting. Around the the 17th century, coffee becomes this luxury good in Europe because Europeans travel into the Ottoman Empire. They experience these coffee houses and they bring it back to Europe with them. And coffee becomes especially popular in England first. Um, It came to the rest of Europe a little later. Uh, So the first coffee house in London was established in the early 1650s. But by the turn of the 18th century, so by like 1700, there were several hundred coffee houses there. So within 50 years, you have this huge expansion of coffee houses happening. I think about it in the same way as like Bubble tea, 10 years ago, you don't see very many bubble tea places, and now they're like on every street. (laughs) So picture that explosion, but with coffee houses in like old timey London. (laughs) (laughs) And it really was like coffee houses were sort of had a similar cultural position that they have now, where they're sort of places where people go and they discuss the news of the day and things like that. That's really always been a tradition in a coffee house. Or
0: they go and work. You go to write that manuscript <laughs> or paint a picture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or to like
1: talk philosophy or whatever.
0: You know, like they had that
1: sort of cultural position. So yeah, it's it's this European luxury good where you know fancy people are talking and drinking coffee for hours, and it took a little while to become a commodity good, like a good that regular people could access, um, partially just because. Traders uh, had more difficulty accessing coffee than they did for other products. So tea actually was introduced to England later than coffee, but it becomes this huge um, sort of good that is now sort of very associated with England. Is it because tea tastes a thousand times better than coffee? No, it was because it was easier for British traders to get into the tea market than the coffee market, so it just
0: happened (laughs) faster. (laughs) No. Well, I'm going to go ahead and believe it's the other thing.
1: <laughs> you can make your own decisions about that. I'm team coffee, as we know. Uh, so, as I had mentioned, Yemen was sort of this really big um, spot for coffee production for much of its history. Um, and Arab traders in Yemen um, really did monopolize coffee production until 1699, when the Dutch finally successfully introduced coffee to Java. One thing that I think is very interesting um, that I did not know before researching this podcast, mocha is actually a Yemeni port, and that's why mocha, like, that's why we sometimes refer to certain coffee drinks with, like, chocolate in it as mocha. It goes back to originally where coffee was, like, traded out of, was mocha. Wow! (laughs) Yeah, And similar thing with Java, right, which is another um, nickname for coffee, that's because that's where... The Dutch started, um, you know, through colonialism, growing coffee was in, like, the Indonesian region of Java. Mocha and Java, actually, about uh, where coffee was produced. Um, but actually, a lot of American coffee sellers in, like, the early days when coffee was really getting popular, um, so, like, the 1800s, um, they would pass off Latin American coffee because it was really hard for them to get actual coffee that was from either Java or Mocha. So... They would pass off um, their coffee from Latin America as mocha or java based on the look of the coffee. So, like, smaller beans were mocha, larger beans were java. <laughs> it's just because they thought they could get a better price
0: for it because Latin American coffee was seen as lower quality at the time. So. Oh my goodness. I love that business practices have never changed since the <laughs> dawn of time. I <laughs> know. <Good boy. laughs> it's like the oldest grift in the world.
1: <laughs> After the Dutch start producing coffee in Java, coffee starts to spread around the world through pathways of empire, right? So you've got the various colonial powers that are all taking coffee to their various colonies and trying to get them to grow there. So like the French start, they take it to Africa. The Dutch introduce it to South America. and Portugal gets it to Brazil. And like it's... (laughs) (laughs) It's everywhere. Like it becomes this this big... uh, Commodity that's produced pretty much everywhere in Latin America by the end of the 18th century but also all over the world or all over the world with the limit that like coffee can only grow if in a certain climate you know so and <laughs> have a tough time growing it in Canada at least until climate change gets
0: worse, unless you're growing it in your apartment.
1: yeah, I mean, I still think it's going to have a tough time, but uh, update <laughs> us on your progress in four to seven years. <laughs> So yeah, um, by the 1830s, Brazil was actually producing 50% of the world's coffee supply. So pretty quickly becomes a huge producer of coffee. It became a real problem for the industry because... So there was this this pest blight that was causing problems for coffee that was grown out of Java um, and other Asian areas. And at the same time as that's a problem, Brazil abolishes slavery in 1888, and that collapses the coffee industry... Which I think tells you a lot about how the coffee industry was running at that time and arguably still to today. It's not good when your entire industry collapses when you ban slavery.
0: That's uh, it's a bad look.
1: Yeah. And like similar things had happened. Um, so Haiti was briefly a, a big coffee producing place, um, but they there was a slave revolt and that disrupted the industry there. And with the same thing in, um, in El Salvador, the government had to put in place, like, a series of really punitive laws to compel people to work on plantations because they, like, they didn't want to <laughs> because they were perfectly happy living their lives. So um, it really is, like, this expansion of coffee production. Um, I don't want to tell it with too much of an optimistic lens because it is oftentimes a trail of, like, destruction and colonialism, and those um, impacts are still feeling themselves out today. So, yeah, um, that is a brief history of coffee production. Today, the total value of the coffee industry um, is $465.9 billion, which is pretty big. Uh, 10.21 million bags of coffee were exploited in 2020. So 10 million bags of coffee were exported places. There's actually been a huge jump in the value of the coffee industry between 2019 and 2020, I don't specifically know why, but I have to imagine the pandemic had something to do with it. I just thought that was interesting. Coffee consumption is pretty big in in a lot of countries. Um, The U.S. coffee market is about $14 billion. I do want to highlight the Australians um, because their coffee market is $7.8 billion. So (laughs) it's like more than half as much as the American market for coffee, even though Australia has like one tenth the size
0: of the population.
1: Yeah, something like that. It's like three hundred million for the states and
0: twenty five million for Australia. Like, (laughs) damn Australia. Australians drink a lot of coffee. (laughs) I don't know if like the rest of the world needs to sit down with Australia and have like a a, like an actual intervention.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wonder to what extent it's like, um, is it that Aussies drink more coffee or is it that they pay more for coffee? Like. Are they just buying more premium coffee, which would be an interesting thing if it were true, but I didn't look into that, so that's on me. <laughs> um, so some of the top exporters of coffee, Brazil is still a big exporter, Vietnam, Colombia, Honduras, and Indonesia. So a couple of the like historically big producers are still huge exporters. But I mean, where you're importing coffee from does to a certain extent depend on where in the world you are. So in Canada, most of our like our top um, ex- importing countries um, are all Latin American, which sort of makes sense. Brazil, Peru, Colombia, Nicaragua, Guatemala, and Mexico are the big countries we import coffee from. I suspect it's similar for the United States, but I don't know. And yeah, around 125 million people globally depend on coffee for their livelihoods. So it's a pretty substantial um, chunk of people that work in coffee. So one interesting thing about coffee is that about 80% of the world's coffee is produced through smallholder farmers. So it's not, there are certainly some bigger production, um, like some bigger plantations, but in a lot of cases, your coffee is being grown by sort of small operations, um, that are more informal. A lot of the problems that we'll talk about in terms of coffee production come from the fact that these smallholder farmers get very little value from the coffee. So, it is kind of similar to tea in that sense that the people actually growing the coffee are getting very little of the value out of it and most of that value is coming in the like end of the supply chain from like the people that are roasting and selling the coffee. So coffee farmers typically only earn like 7 to 10% of the retail price of coffee, and it can even be much lower in some cases. And part of that's because the coffee buying industry is so concentrated. There are three coffee buyers that control half of the global coffee trade, um, so Ecom, Newman, and Volcafe. And then 40% of the coffee in the world is produced by big um, coffee roasters, so Nestle is one that you'll probably recognize. And then one that I didn't recognize, but I suspect other people would, is um, Jacobs do egg JDE. J-D-E. I'd never heard of them, but apparently they're huge. So, uh, but yeah, so it's it's a very concentrated industry. You take, you have smallholder farmers. So at the very bottom of the supply chain, there's like a whole bunch of producers. And then it gets really narrowed in around um, the coffee buying and roasting. And so like there there is like if you get premium coffee you can have like bypass these big roasters and buyers but you have to be actively looking for it. If you're just buying coffee in your local supermarket without really like shopping for you know ethics or whatever, you're likely to be going through this process. And that makes it really easy to squeeze small holders, right? Um and so it's it's kind of interesting because this like price has been a big issue, but it there actually is um a lot of consumer demand for ethical coffee, so there's been consumer research that finds about fifty three percent of American coffee drinkers would um buy ethical coffee and that they're willing to pay about a dollar thirty one extra for a cup of coffee produced by a cooperative farmer, so that's not an insubstantial price increase that people are willing to take on a cup of coffee. you know a dollar thirty one extra is pretty substantial, <laughs> so like you would think it it would be pretty easy to fix some um, a lot of the problems we're about to talk about, but we haven't. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And with that really hopeful aside, let's move on to working conditions then. I'm not going to talk too much about it. Like the working conditions are in a lot of ways similar to what we've heard about for other agricultural um, products, you know, like long working hours, there are natural hazards like snakes and things like that that people have to contend with. Um, but the big problem really is the low price for coffee. Uh, so a study found that nearly 61 percent of coffee growers are selling their coffee at prices that are actually under the cost of production. That's pretty fucked
0: up. Wait. <laughs> so So why be a coffee farmer if it costs you money?
1: Well, I think they're like factoring in wages there, um, but like the why is, I think because it gets you better value than other, even less, um,
0: high paying crops. So are they making up the gap then by just not paying the people working on the farms? Well, they're smallholders, So in a lot of cases, it's like family run, right?
1: Or run by a small like group of people. So what ends up happening that is just like, they're not getting a living wage as a result, which means that coffee producers are in poverty. And like, the global coffee industry has been really growing. And, um, like the value of the market's been increasing, but coffee farmers' average incomes actually haven't changed in the past 20 years. And actually, if you factor in the fact that it's now um, more expensive to be a coffee farmer, um, the like average income has actually decreased, if you take that into account. So that low price of coffee, it creates a whole bunch of other problems for coffee farmers. And one of those is child labor. If you think about it, like these are smallholder farmers, um, so... If you're trying to get enough yield to be able to get by, you might need to, if the prices are low, pull your child out of school to help with the harvest right and that's something that does happen fairly frequently in coffee production, and so child labor is a big concern in coffee production um, for that reason. The solution is to raise the cost of the right the price of coffee, and so that's something that like fair trade has been going towards and Coffee is by far the leading fair trade product. If you think about fair tri- trade, most people think about coffee. Most people who have seen fair trade labels have seen it on coffee. Fair trade we've talked about in previous episodes, but the idea is basically to combat the like race to the bottom in globalization by ensuring that people get um, a living wage. Fair trade has estimated that um, coffee needs to be sold at $1.40 per pound in order to provide farmers with a living income and that's about 40% higher than the current market price which is pretty ridiculous i think
0: <laughs> yeah well i mean i'm not surprised considering all of the ceos at the tops of these companies are probably billionaires <laughs> and it's not like they would need to raise the cof- the co- the cost of coffee to the end user it's just like stop paying your executives so much money and everybody gets an equitable share but maybe i'm not an econ- i'm not an economist i don't know
1: yeah, but I think you also could raise the the cost of coffee, because it's not like it's a food, like it's a it's a luxury item, or a drug, or, I don't know, like an accompaniment, like it's not something that people need to survive, so I think we should be treating it a little
0: bit more like luxuries. Yeah, I agree. I As someone who doesn't drink coffee, raise the price as high as you guys want. We're going to do that for tea, too? sure yeah you know what i would pay more for tea
1: (laughs) yeah absolutely that's how i feel about coffee too um like a dollar 40 per pound is not ridiculous and admittedly that's just the price that the farmers would need to get so there's still like the increased price of roasting and retailing whatever but point is i think they could do it and fair trade coffee isn't ridiculous but the fair trade minimum price is a dollar 40 per pound so it's meant to match what they think uh, a living wage is um, or if you're fair trade and organic, it's a dollar seventy, just to reflect that it is slightly more expensive to produce coffee with organic methods. And on top of that, um, whichever price you're going into, farmers also receive an extra twenty cents per pound um, through the fair trade premium. The way that works is basically um, it has to be invested in. So like a quarter of it has to go to productivity and quality initiatives to directly help the um, production of coffee. The idea that you can invest to make, the, to make your business work better over time. Um, and then the other 75% of the premium can go to anything that the cooperative wants. So sometimes it'll, still, it'll be things that are also going into the business like, um, like uh, facility upgrades. But in other cases, it might be like a community healthcare initiative or something that can help like the people in that community. Um, so Fair Trade coffee producers, they earned more than $94 million in the premium in 2017. So fair trade is like, it's definitely not perfect. We've talked about some of the harms of or some of the weaknesses of fair trade um on other episodes. But it is targeted at addressing that sort of like central problem in coffee production. It's at least a start, I think. Having said that, um, I mean, we mentioned that many coffee producers are smallholders. Not all of them are. Um, And there are other problems on large plantations. Uh, One that I want to highlight just really quickly is um, modern slavery. So there is a study that was done by the Thomson Reuters Foundation that found that there is like incredibly widespread use of
0: modern slavery on Brazilian coffee plantations. So that's a problem as well. And if you guys want more details about that, we actually do a a whole episode on forced labor that goes into how stuff like that happens. So check that out if you want to be very sad. Nice plug. I like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to talk about the environment now?
0: Yeah, let's do it. Okay. My prediction, because uh, we found that with tea, it was actually surprisingly good for the environment uh or at least it wasn't like actively harmful in a way that a lot of other industries are so i predict coffee will be the same she said hopefully
1: yeah i think um i think i didn't do a head-to-head comparison in my actual research but i had for a friend of mine that really likes tea and i think tea stacks up slightly better on the environment than coffee but they're both like pretty negligible There was a study that was done um, in 2008, so it's a little out of date, but it basically found that if you're looking at the coffee production process, the two parts that have the biggest um, emissions are coffee brewing and coffee transportation. Coffee growing and coffee roasting are both sort of relatively small in terms of their, their environmental footprint, but transporting the coffee places takes some emissions and brewing the coffee takes some emissions. Most consumers won't have any control over how coffee is transported. (laughs) And uh, if you're in a place like Canada, you can't really opt for local coffee, at least not locally grown coffee, because coffee really only grows in the tropics. So I didn't really go into transportation just because there's so little control around that. We'll we'll talk about some of the other elements. I also didn't talk about roasting because I, I researched it a little bit. And it didn't seem like there were any big themes to pick up on. Coffee roasting is something that like some people are trying to do as environmentally as possible, but there aren't like big debates about how to do it that way. At least not that I was able to find in an easily digestible format. I'm sure a coffee roaster has very particular perspectives on
0: this. (laughs) And reach out to us if you want to share them. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So let's talk a
1: little bit about the environment and coffee growing. Well, I should first mention... So pretty low environmental impact. It is a plant, uh, you know, <laughs> but um, there are ways to be more or less environmentally sound when you're growing coffee. And one of the big distinctions is sun-grown versus shade-grown coffee. want to hazard a guess at what that means based on what it's called.
0: <laughs> um, I mean... <laughs> did- Growing coffee in the sun, I would expect, would be better than growing coffee in the shade, but I don't know what kind of shade it is. Are you, is it taller trees around the coffee plants? It is, yeah. Okay. Shade grown is like traditionally how
1: coffee has been grown, at least um, as far as I was able to find. And it basically means that you're growing coffee um, within a canopy of other trees. So there, it's in shade because there are other trees around. But recently, there's been a shift to sun-grown coffee um, in order to sort of meet rising demand because sun-grown coffee can um, produce slightly bigger yields. And sun-grown coffee is basically like you don't have
0: those other trees around. So you clear
1: cut and then you plant the coffee.
0: Okay, so I can tell that one is better for mass production and one is better for the environment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If your bottom line is not focused on the environment and your calculus, sun-grown is like a much um, cheaper alternative, but I think that the environment should be a part of the calculus. So there are two reasons that sun-grown coffee is not as good for the environment. Um, And one of them is that um, the sun-grown method requires fertilizer in a way that um, the shaded version doesn't because the shaded version is happening within a natural ecosystem. So you don't need fertilizer. It's also a cause of deforestation. So, because you have to clear forested area in order to make room for those plantations, similar to how like palm oil is a cause of deforestation, it's the same kind of deal for sun grown coffee, but not shade grown coffee. Depending on where the coffee is being grown, um, some are more likely to be shade grown versus sun grown. So, like Guatemala and Nicaragua, coffee is typically grown in the shade. Colombia, Brazil, usually it's sun-grown. So that's one way to just tell the difference without any environmental labels at all. Um, Another way to tell is um, most organic growers, though not all, will use shade-grown methods. If you get an organics label, it's oftentimes the case that it's shade-grown, but you can try to be extra sure um, by using bird-friendly certification. So that's a certification scheme that is specific for a shade-grown coffee because it means that you're not removing birds as homes.
0: <laughs> it's better for biodiversity overall, but uh, birds are cute, so. Oh, maybe that's what the frog label on my coffee is.
1: <laughs> maybe, yeah, it could be. So another impact environmentally is water use. For this one, we do have to focus on the growing process because most of the water that's used to produce coffee is used in growing the coffee. Um, Approximately 130 liters of water are used to produce a cup of coffee. I'll just give some context for that, though. So 130 liters for one cup of coffee. If you're going to do a kilogram of beef, it's going to be 15,400. So 130, (laughs) (laughs) 15,400. Like... There's just a difference in scale in terms of
0: the water that's being used. <laughs> that's a good comparison, because 130 liters for one cup sounds like a lot, and
1: yeah, until you mention that 15,400 are for a kilogram, of heat. <laughs> it is a
0: lot. But it's, I mean,
1: this is just because you it takes water to grow stuff. You know, it's not like um, it's not like coffee is a huge user of water. 130 liters for a cup is. I think more than tea, but it's not like a huge amount. And just to give some more context, if you're using a cup of dairy milk, it takes 255 liters of water to produce the same volume of... So a cup of milk, uh, 255 liters. A cup of uh, coffee is 130 liters of water. So it's almost twice as much for the milk versus the coffee. You can look at the impact of climate change as well. um, this This is less sort of about like... What's ethical and more about how climate change is actually having a real impact already on coffee production. So climate change is already reducing coffee yields in certain areas, and it's also um, and that's because basically pests are getting into areas that they weren't previously able to get into. It's also changing the ideal altitude for coffee growing. So warmer temperatures are actually making um, it harder because coffee production already likes high altitudes. And so as it gets warmer, the coffee likes even higher and higher altitudes. So that's potentially a problem because as you need to move coffee production up, you're potentially displacing communities and definitely displacing wildlife while you're doing that. Want to talk about the brewing method? Yeah, tell me. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So there are some debates about the best and worst ways to brew coffee. My big overarching thing that I want to say in this is that a lot, a lot depends on what's the volume of coffee that you're making and how are you using whatever brewing method you're using. One thing that we can say fairly definitively is that cold brew is the most environmentally friendly way to brew coffee because it doesn't require any electricity as long as you're using, and as long as you're using a reusable filter, it's pretty environmentally friendly. Although I don't think cold brew has like, officially been in any life cycle analysis, I think it's fairly safe to say like, you're not using any additional electricity if all you're doing is brewing it in like, a fridge that you already have on, even though fridges do use a lot of energy. So generally speaking, a brewing method is going to be more environmentally friendly if you have a reusable filter, if you waste very little of the coffee that you make, and also if you keep whatever machine you have on for only a short duration. Those are good practices that are generally um, applicable to sort of all coffee brewing methods. And there's like this huge debate out there um, because I think intuitively most people are like, hmm, a coffee production system where you are (laughs) like you're turning on a machine and you're putting you're taking coffee that's in a disposable cup, you're pouring one cup of coffee and then you're throwing away like the plastic from that. That seems like it's bad for the environment. So there have been a lot of hot takes lately that are like, is it actually good for the environment? <laughs> it's like, no, no, it's not. But it is the case that like on some metrics, there have been a few life cycle analyses. So these are um, basically measurements that take in a bunch of assumptions about a product and um, try to measure what the like environmental impact over the lifetime of a product are. And uh, also to like pair that against um, different production methods. So we looked at a life cycle analysis like way back in the Christmas trees episode <laughs> uh, where we are looking at like a real versus a fake tree. They've done like similar things here for different coffee brewing methods. And it's usually coffee pod machines versus drip coffee. And there have been some findings that are like, oh, actually drip coffee is worse. But, 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 but I think this sort of like is really based in what the assumptions are and a lot of the my my big problem with a lot of the articles that are like are coffee pods good for the environment is first of all no they're not and these life cycle analyses like they're they're building in assumptions and like also it's based on it's based on these assumptions that you're wasting a lot of coffee through drip coffee so i'll just i'll talk about first what's true about these life cycle assessments and then what's false so it is true that there have been analyses that have pointed to the fact that single-serve coffee systems tend to result in less coffee waste, which makes sense, and that that itself can be more sustainable. So if you're producing one cup of coffee and drinking that whole cup of coffee, you're wasting a lot less coffee than if you're producing a a pot of coffee and like maybe half of it gets thrown out and then you brew another pot later. If you're just like, producing coffee as you need it, there's less coffee that you're wasting. And so if you think about like the fact that when you're growing coffee, you're using a bunch of resources to grow it, and you're using more resources to transport it, that's why in some cases, life cycle assessments can find that these single um, serve systems can be better. Having said that, these life cycle um, analyses tend to assume that people prepare way too much coffee um, and they're brewing extra batches to retain freshness. But that's something that you as a consumer can control, right? So if you're not doing that, then that changes the calculus a little bit. And there's one study that I found that looked at different assessments for how much drip coffee people are wasting. And it actually found that like if you're accurately assessing the drip coffee that you're producing and like you're drinking all of the drip coffee that you're producing, then like it's actually better than the single serve ones. <laughs> it's just like it, that people are wasting. They're assuming that people are wasting a lot of drip coffee and that that can create a lot of waste in addition to the fact that people often leave drip coffee machines on all day um and like the warming plate produces a lot of energy so that's why you'll sometimes see these like hot take articles that are like coffee pods are better that's not the case what they're just saying is that drip coffee if you're just producing like a 10 cup pot of drip coffee drinking one cup of coffee from it and letting it sit like, yeah, that wastes a lot of product, which then is not great for the environment. So don't do that. Um, The other thing is that like these studies also assume that um, drip coffee is being brewed using a disposable paper filter, which is probably accurate for most people. But like if you use a reusable filter, that would reduce that risk, that um, environmental impact as well. And also if you're buying coffee that isn't conventionally packaged, if you're buying it from like a A bulk food store or something and putting it in your reusable container, that will also reduce the environmental impact. So, even though it is true that some life cycle analyses have found that drip coffee is worse than single serve capsule coffee, that does not mean that capsules are good for the environment. It means that we need to be more careful about overproducing coffee and keeping those, like keeping our machines on all day. Those are two things that you would get from that. Also, these analyses typically don't look at like comparing capsule coffee to other single serve measures like a French press, which would eliminate that waste problem and also avoid the garbage problem of coffee pods. So like, yes, maybe the worst form is a drip coffee that you're not accurately pouring that you're leaving out all day. That does not mean coffee pods are good for the environment. They are not. Every minute, approximately 29,000 coffee capsules are dumped into landfills worldwide. There's no way getting around that that is a huge garbage problem, you know?
0: Ah, that's a very upsetting statistic. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Sorry, I know I'm ranting a little. I'm just so angry about this. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, I mean, the other thing is capsule machines aren't necessarily a bad thing. What's bad about them is that they usually use um, single-use coffee pods, but you could fix that if you were to buy a machine and then also get a reusable coffee pod. And then you could fill your own coffee with those reusable pods, and then you'd be able to get the advantages of using a single-serve machine without producing the waste of plastic coffee pods that probably aren't going to get recycled.
0: That's a great solution. I didn't know you could get reusable pods
1: Yeah, so there are a few different options that like that are out there um, and there's a link in our research notes for a guide for how to choose if you want. Just a quick note that um, <sighs> biodegradable capsules are not in most cases a good solution unless you do genuinely compost and you know that they're compostable through the system that you're using. then biodegradable capsules might be a good option. Um, And as well, like, if you have a capsule that is labeled recyclable, and it's plastic, like it may not actually be recyclable in your municipal facilities. So like, check that out. And same with the aluminum pods, those should usually be recyclable if you have an aluminum pod, but make sure you check that out as well. So that would be my solution. If you're if you're going to use a coffee pod, like the best solution is reusable. Biodegradable and recyclable versions, they oftentimes just won't end up in the systems they're supposed to be in. So, And even when they do, they oftentimes don't actually get recycled. We know that's the case for most plastics. So I would assume if you're using a capsule, just assume that it's ending up in a landfill um, or in the ocean. Don't assume that it's getting recycled because it probably isn't. So go go reusable if you're going to use a coffee pod machine, I would say. So that's coffee pots, <laughs> but in general, like people have their pet methods for making coffee. And personally, I think that's fine. I would just say whatever method you use, try to make it as environmentally friendly as possible. And there are a few steps that you can take to do that. So first avoid single use filters, whatever your method is, um, try to find a, a uh, reusable alternative to throw away stuff. Second, turn your machine off when you're done. Third, don't produce more coffee than you need. And fourth, keep your machine clean, which will make it operate more efficiently. If you do all of those things, whether you're using a French press or an espresso machine or a coffee pod or drip coffee, you're going to be doing okay, I think. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you have thoughts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that. That's good. We're not we're not here to say stop drinking coffee. We're not monsters. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Another question that I had that I don't have an answer to unfortunately is the idea that it might actually be more environmentally friendly to get coffee at a cafe. I think that might be true in some instances because like they can benefit from economies of scale. They produce a high volume of coffee, so presumably they're not running into this issue of like you're putting on a whole thing of drip coffee for one cup. But there are also like a lot of factors that go into it, so I can't definitively say what's better. And also, right now, anyway, in a lot of cafes, you're getting those disposable cups, um, which can't be recycled. So I would personally say, uh, if you can't get a reusable cup, it's probably better to just buy from home for now. But on the other hand, we don't want local businesses to go out of business. So I don't know. (laughs) It's a tough call. The next thing to think about when it comes to coffee is packaging. Um, Most coffee packaging, like if you think of the big like bags of coffee that you'll buy, they're generally not recyclable just because of the way that um, the bags are made. It's pretty hard to recycle. So if you can, some roasters will sell coffee by weight. A lot of them probably aren't right now, but in normal times, they probably will start doing so again. So you can get your coffee refilled from those options if they'll let you. Otherwise, you can try your local bulk food store or waste-free grocery store. They'll usually have options where you can go package-less. Um, So that's one way that you can reduce the impact of packaging. Or just buying big bags of coffee is another way. But coffee does go stale fairly easily, so that may not be a great solution. Another option, another thing to think about when you're buying coffee is the accompaniment. So how you take your coffee. It's a huge question for people. (laughs) There's a huge cultural thing around whether you're a black coffee drinker or you take it with milk or whatever. So just a quick note that if you traditionally use animal milk in your coffee, that's going to up the environmental impact of your coffee consumption. So you might want to think about a plant milk Uh, oat milk it would be my suggestion but I don't know Kyla you don't really drink coffee but do you have other thoughts about does your what does your um boyfriend drink when he drinks coffee he's a vegan right
0: yeah he drinks Americanos black so
1: (laughs) okay so no milk question for him (laughs) I'm a big oat milk person um if I'm doing a latte I'll sometimes do soy milk just because I like the nuttiness. Um, I tend to avoid almond milk um, and other nut milks because I find that it often curdles in hot liquids. So my suggestion would be oat milk is always a safe choice, if not soy. But like whatever you want, it doesn't matter really. Um, (laughs) And then just, just, you know, as long as it's not dairy milk, it's going to be fine. Um, And then just another note that if you add something else like sugar or a powdered creamer, you have to consider the impact of those as well. So We have a whole episode on sugar and how it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) What can you do to help? Um, So in order to help the sort of human rights situation, you can look for coffee that is Fairtrade certified, Rainforest Alliance certified. There are a couple of different Fairtrade certifications that you can go for. So most of them are pretty good. You can go for one of those. You can also try to double up with organic certification, which will help with some of those, like, is it shade-grown questions. Not all ethically sourced coffee is going to be certified, though, so you can also just have a conversation with your coffee roaster, and if they have, like, a fairly robust process for how they buy coffee that may not necessarily be officially certified, that might be something to go with. It's kind of the same approach that um, we talked about in the chocolate episode. But fair trade, if you're, like, if you're even questioning whether that person um, cares, then like fair trade's a good way to, um, to sort of ensure that there's some standard there. So if you have a high level of trust in your coffee roaster, they seem legit, they've been trying really hard. Um, direct purchasing is a legitimate way to go about it, and that may not results in actual certification because certification does impose some like bureaucratic costs on smallholder farmers. But fair trade is generally safer, especially if you're buying from like a big company. That fair trade brand is a good way to make sure that they've actually paid farmers like a price that is a living wage for, for people. So I'd really recommend doing that. Um, you can also take those environmental suggestions for um, brewing coffee and choosing your coffee. The other thing I would really recommend that you do um, in particular around the child labor and modern slavery aspects of coffee production is you can support legislation that would require big companies to take action and to report on their efforts to address child enforced labor. So there is, if you're Canadian, actually a live bill in the process on this. It's called Bill S. 216, or An Act to Enact the Modern Slavery Act, which is a lot of acts in one bill (laughs) name, but I'll say that again. It's An Act to Enact the Modern Slavery Act.
0: Did someone come up with that as a joke to try and, like, get more attention for it? Because I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know.
1: But it's it's kind of cool bill um it would basically require big businesses in Canada um to provide like an annual report that get would get publicly posted and in that annual report they'd have to say what efforts they took to ensure that they weren't sourcing from child or forced labor and that's not specific to the coffee industry that's for every product so the bill would also ban the import of goods that are produced um, by forced or child labor. So it does go a bit farther than just asking companies to disclose, at least as it's currently written. It's like, as bills go through the process, they sometimes get changed. So we'll see whether it stays as strong as it is. But the bill right now, it's currently being discussed in a committee. Um, so it's like going through that legislative process. So now's a really good time if you're Canadian to contact... Um, your provincial senators, or to contact your member of parliament or both to just tell them you think that this is a good bill, it has your support, and to ask whether they support it too. If you are in Australia, the United Kingdom, California, or France, bully for you, you already have similar laws. (laughs) Nice! Awesome! (laughs) So you can find another law to support, but um, you already have a (laughs) version of a modern slavery act. Otherwise, your country does not have it, I think. This was a comprehensive list. So if you're in the United States, this um, legislation does not exist there. So you can ask your representative about that. So that would be my call to action is yell at your member of parliament (laughs) or senators about an act to enact the Modern Slavery Act, which is a name (laughs) that's growing on me.
0: (laughs) I love it so much. (laughs) That's awesome. That's a great call to action. I mean, it's our most common one, but (laughs) we want big change. Yeah, exactly.
1: You can only get so far. Like, um, I wasn't able to find exact figures that were recent, but fair trade is only something like 2% of the coffee market. So it's great. It's a really good way to promote a solution. Making fair trade more mainstream is a super good way that you can have an impact. But Legislation is really the way that you make quick change. So let's get governments to do their jobs.
0: Yeah, fabulous. And if anyone wants to correct anything that we said or <laughs> add to the conversation, you can get us on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. And Kristen will have all of these amazing sources on our fabulous website that has so much extra information that we don't have time to get into on the show so if you guys want to learn more about any subjects Kristen is really good at posting comprehensive notes on the website
1: (laughs) yeah and you can also pick up coffee land a really good book about the history of coffee
0: highly recommend nice awesome thank you for listening everyone and we'll catch you on the next episode